1: Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast.
2: I had an experience last week that was just remarkable. I was lying in bed at night ready to go to sleep and started asking myself what practice I wanted to do, what might be fun to do here. I wasn't really completely tired yet. I knew it would take a little while to go to sleep. If if you really look at the scriptures, they all say that love is always available, that God's presence is everywhere, that really grace is omnipresent. We all believe that intellectually. Everybody, I would assume everybody in the room, believes that there is this sense of wholeness. There is this sense that God's grace is available if but we receive it. So I asked myself, well, I could do some compassion practice for people in my groups, or I could send love to a bunch of people, or I could do forgiveness practices. But I thought, why don't I feel this sense of grace? Why am I, why am I not just overwhelmed with love? And I realized that the only reason I wasn't was that I had this assumption that I needed to do something to get there I needed to be a slightly different person to receive God's love that I had to I had to get a little better I had to relax I had to relax or surrender a little more I thought well you know is that true is that true can I what about if right now I just completely assume that it's here and it was it was there and it's been there I mean not quite as like much as the full first blast but I realized that I've, I've spent so long practicing that I get attached or identified with some of these earlier levels of practice where there's a sense of getting somewhere or I have to be mindful in order to be compassionate in order to begin to see the sacredness in things. Since then, it's been just the quality of grace or of presence or of love, whatever you call it, I think you all know pretty much what I'm talking about. I think we've all experienced it, is only a thought away. It's just letting go of the thought that it's not there because it is there all the time, right? When we were in India, Ram Dass came up with this slogan, Suffering is Grace, which I hated. I mean, I thought that was a really bad idea. Obviously, the notion there is that if you are suffering, it's showing you what it is that's preventing you from resting in their presence. That's the grace of the suffering, that the suffering is this perfect pointing at that place where you can be resting in God's embrace. I think a lot of people spend a lot of time working to be mindful and people come to me and say, I have these really difficult jobs where I'm busy a lot and I'm on the computer and I'm, I I just, there's a lot of chaos and working with machines and technology in my life and it's really, really hard to be mindful. As long as you feel that you have to be mindful each moment in order to be experiencing that sense of grace, that basking in presence, then I think it's going to be a really difficult task. And in fact, one of my earlier meditation teachers, a guy named Winindra, Manindraji, uh, one of Joseph Goldstein's primary teachers, he said, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. And he was a Vipassana teacher. I would agree that if you are eternally vigilant, you will be free. But I'm not very good at eternal vigilance. I like resting in grace much better. And I remember when I was in India doing a whole series of these Goenka retreats, between a couple of the retreats, I had to go to a bank to get some traveler's checks cashed. Uh, I took a rickshaw out of the bank and I'm sitting there waiting. In India, going to the bank is not like going to the bank here. You sit and you wait. You can wait for hours for somebody to come and get ready to do something. So I'm sitting there, and then another guy from the meditation course came and he sat down next to me. I said, what are you doing? How how are you doing? He said, I'm just watching my breath, aren't you? And I I thought, well, no, I'm not. I'm just looking at India and being really fascinated by how interesting and wonderful this life is here. And I realized that, for me at least, that path of, okay, I'm going to be persistent in my vigilance to be mindful every moment is not my deepest way. That for me, I have to bring in more of the heart, and I do fully appreciate that if you are persistent enough and are mindful enough, the heart opens all by itself. In fact, there's another wonderful Vipassana teacher named Deepama who was a lay person, an elderly housewife living in Calcutta. And she would say that for her, mindfulness and loving-kindness practice were the same thing. Her practice was so deep that she couldn't pay attention to something and not love it. And she couldn't love something and not pay attention to it. I mean, how could they be two different things? But for most of us, we have to learn to pay attention to the things that block our heart so that we can slowly purify through awareness. And then as time goes on, we can then not only just be mindful of what is causing suffering, but we can also have compassion, which greatly speeds up the process. But I'm saying now that there's this third step. We could call it tantra even. Once the heart is open enough, what happens then is the mind gets really, really balanced. We don't have to be wondering about, is this going to be bearable? Am I going to like this or not? That we can be letting life come to us because we're not afraid of suffering. When suffering comes, we can have compassion for it. And as we do that, the eye begins to relax. The mind becomes much more spacious. The, the ego structure is just one small cloud on the vast, boundless sky of the heart-mind, and it is revealed that God's presence is always there, moment to moment to moment. If you're feeling in this, this moment that you're not experiencing that sense of presence, is there something you need to do to let go of that false assumption? I mean, even beyond letting go of suffering, isn't the suffering itself even God's presence? Is there anything that is not that? But as long as we're on the path working, I have to go beyond suffering so I can become free, we're still in these more dualistic, beginning-intermediate stages of practice. Yes, we have to work with suffering, we have to work with difficult emotions that show us very clearly what we still need to let go of identifying with, let go of attachment, let go of grasping. Do you feel it right now?
0: I believe
1: that. I think it's available all the time. I'm just not available.
2: Let me read a few quotes about this. St. Teresa of Avila, I am with you. I'm within you. So do not turn away, but come rest in me. With a capital M on the me. The 16th Karmapa. You take it all in. You let the pain of the world touch your heart, and you turn it into compassion. Marion Woodman, the Canadian Jungian therapist. The place where you are wounded, there God can enter in. It is at the point of suffering where we truly meet each other. So compassion, we've talked about it off and on for years, and I think all of us, including myself at times, can misunderstand it a little bit, think compassion as being nice and and friendly and things like that. But it really is trusting the totally empty heart, trusting emptiness. There's this this concept in Buddhism that can be very confusing, but it's quite profound, that the nature of the mind or the nature of the heart is emptiness. And it sounds kind of scary at first, doesn't it? That you'd like, instead of emptiness, you'd like to be a friendly god waiting in there, somebody who's going to be really nice to you when you show up, rather than nothing. But emptiness isn't really nothing. Emptiness is no concept, no opinion, particularly the opinion of you as a separate self. So that there's this emptiness because each experience keeps arising. There's not a you who's collecting. You're just very intimately, directly, tenderly experiencing life as it arises moment to moment. After I had that experience, I thought, well, maybe this just is a one-time thing. I just happened to have some nice biorhythms that night. And uh, it's not going to be that way tomorrow night and the next night. But there's been a real... It, 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 it hasn't been as surprising as it was the first time. But there has been a, a, a strong... What would I say? A residue or an after effect from that. When I do have a little space... I can just go right to that place, and when I go to bed at night, I just think about everybody and love people and love the whole world and even love myself, Uh, love all of the people in this room one at a time. And I'm not bothered by traffic nearly as much. (laughs) Traffic has always been the one place where I allow myself to be angry because it's not really affecting anybody else. I can yell in the car and I'm not hurting anybody. And I've been somebody all my life who suppressed my anger. I was a good boy. I was a good student. I'm a good father. I'm a, I try to be good. It, it has come at some cost. So when I see people acting very selfishly, I let anger come, and I, it, I'm very interested in how long it lasts and do I hold on to it? Do I really blame the other person, or can I just let it come? And leave almost no residue, just whoop like that, rather than pushing it down, but letting it come out, and not making obscene gestures or driving in an aggressive way necessarily, but just feeling that compassion can seem heartless. Compassion can compassion at times is ruthless. Compassion is compassion and activity is. What can I do right now to most directly alleviate suffering in this immediate circumstance? And sometimes it is blowing somebody out of the water. Sometimes it's saying, I hear what you're saying, but I don't believe you. Or I'd really like you to question that. Even though you seem to believe that, that might not be as true as you think it is. Why don't we try to investigate this together? How does it make you feel when you're really holding on to that assumption? And what would it feel like if you didn't? And I think the obvious example here is if you're parenting a small child, compassion at times has to be tough love. If if you have a parent that's not setting strong boundaries, that child is going to grow up to be a mess. And in a way, we look around the world and we see a lot of, I mean, almost everybody, if you look at them carefully enough with the right set of eyeballs, you see somebody who's their adult age and 10 years younger and 20 years younger and 2 years old and 8 years old, and all these little fixations, are not so little, that happened along the way. I particularly see a lot of older white men walking around in uh, shorts and white legs, looking like they're about eight years old. Have you noticed that? Compassion doesn't necessarily alleviate suffering in the moment but makes it bearable and workable. So if we think we're opening our heart to compassion suffering away, it might not work. Compassion is the courage to open your heart to the suffering that is there, to feel the pain. Not to say, if I open my heart, it's going to fix things. That's really not true compassion. That's making a deal. Compassion allows you to be more equanimous. And theoretically, what they say is that equanimity is the protector of the other wholesome qualities, loving kindness and compassion. By cultivating more equanimity, it allows compassion to flow more Smoothly, the more compassionate you are, the more equanimous you're going to be because you're not waiting to dodge the next big chunk of suffering that's coming down the road. You're feeling that your heart can deal with that. To me, compassion is the center stone of the of the path. It's really hard just to be mindful all the time in this modern day and age if you're not a monk or something like that. But When we begin to soften our relationship with our environment through love and compassion, it makes it much less brittle. It makes practice much less brittle, uh, and leads to equanimity, for sure. Begin, please, by invoking that which you trust, God, the Mother, the Christ, the Buddha. So that more and more we can each surrender into that which arises without feeling we need to improve or fix or even understand, beginning to rest more and more in the peace that passes understanding.
1: Feeling the sense of trust in your body, inhabiting the lower part of your body, the, the base, the lower belly, the upper belly. Taking a few breaths into your heart, as if
2: you had nostrils in the center of your chest. Beginning to experience the qualities of the open heart, spaciousness,
1: warmth, connectedness. Feeling connected to that which you invoked. Feeling spacious in the sense that. The identification with the separateness of ego structure is not central, but just a, a small cloud in the vast sky of mind. Feeling a warm heart. warmed by the sense of connection. And now is it possible to
2: ask yourself that question, is there anything preventing me with this open heart, this connected, spacious heart, from going beyond even relationship and realizing that each moment is grace, each
1: arising, each arising is sacred, beyond pure and impure, Just for these few moments, going beyond, I'm practicing. But resting in the grace, resting in the
2: presence that is essential in each moment. Not so much interested even in our relationship with things as
1: the nature of experience, the nature of reality. Each moment grace, each moment full, so empty of self that there is fullness. loving surrender into each moment. This resting in presence doesn't have to be reserved for sitting still and meditating. Some part of us knows that this is the essential
2: quality of each moment, no matter whether we're sitting or standing or
1: moving. Can the open heart keep trusting the surrender?
2: His openness can be experienced as presence, as equanimity, as
1: loving-kindness, as boundlessness, as grace.
2: But can we receive it? Can we touch it? can we be touched by it so directly that every time there is a forgetting there will always be another remembering this sense of aliveness the sense of
1: oneness the sacredness of it all
2: And out of this naturally arises compassion for all beings who are suffering. May they be free from suffering, may they
1: be liberated, may they find peace.
2: I'll check in very briefly.
0: Okay.
2: I really enjoyed being sick. You
0: know that was the worst cold you ever
2: had. Yeah, it was miserable, but it kept remind <laughs> it kept reminding me that I'm not this body. You know that the body was like I used to have a hard time breathing and sleeping. My my lungs were all congested and coughing up green mucus. It was like really messy and and but. First of all, you see the world differently. You can't I didn't have the same energetic relationship with my body and doing things. You know, I was I was kind of at a low ebb. And at this, and as I say, then so there's this consciousness that's kind of the same as always. There's this consciousness, but then the body's acting really differently. And so what's going on here? Right? I love that thing that happened to Ramana Maharshi when he was a teenage boy. I think he was like 16 or 15 or something, where he was in his, his uncle's library. And he's had this overwhelming feeling that he was dying. He wasn't sick at all. He just thought he was dying. So he lay down on the floor and said, if this body dies, am I this body? Does that mean I'm dead? And he said, no, I'm not this body. Well, am I these thoughts? Am I these feelings? Am I these perceptions? And he went through one after the other, and none of the, he, he realized that he wasn't any of those. That he was aware of them; they were objects. So he realized that what remained after all these objects was who he was. And his practice that he taught people was resting in who I am, or who who. It's not really an intellectual question. You're trying to figure out. Who am I? But resting in the I am, resting in pure awareness.